You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. All right, well, what a wonderful morning of celebration. If that was it with our worship, with the baptisms, that would be a great morning. But there's more to come. Some would be like, well, I'm ready to go home. Well, we got more. We, we have more. Now, we are excited this morning to be able to celebrate God's grace in our lives, to celebrate the transformational grace that comes through salvation, just to be able to see that. See two students who, if you, if you all haven't done this yet, like, this is a big step. I did it when I was 18, and I was nervous. And so when I see two students who are of this age taking that step of faithfulness and being obedient, it's like, Man, I just am rejoicing in the fact that God has given them the boldness to declare that they are going to walk with Christ. And so may we be able to have that same boldness. The other thing we get to celebrate today is this is a special day. And no, I am not talking about Halloween. That is not the holiday that, was, that we can celebrate as a church. No, actually the holiday that we can celebrate, it's actually Reformation Day. And you're like, wait, what, what's that day? probably haven't heard of it. Like me, for most of my Christian life, I didn't understand. I heard about, what's this Reformation Day that people talk about? Um, See, Reformation Day marks a specific time in church history that we see a shift. We saw a shift that ultimately would change how church really is done and how widespread it became. You see, oftentimes we talk about reform doctrine. We talk about reformers. And we're like, "What, what does all that mean? Well, over 500 years ago, there's a man named Martin Luther who was a monk who studied Scripture. and He came to the realization that what the church, Catholic church for him particularly, was doing was there, it didn't match with Scripture. And so he decided that on this day, 500 years ago in 1517, that he was going to write some truths out, some grievances that he had. Most of you know him as the 95 Theses. It really could be also understood as the 95 grievances. And so what he did, he took these documents, he sent them to the Pope, he also went to All Saints Church and nailed them to the door to call into question the church's exercising of certain particular activities and called it to repentance and change. And why that was so, so significant really started a movement called the Reformation Movement. A movement that got centered back on God's word, got centered back on Christ, and really drove the opportunity that we have today. It really drove the fact that these doctrines that were already in Scripture became well known again and ultimately impact how churches operate in the evangelical world. And so really out of these, the most notable uh, thing that came out of the 500 or out of the Reformation is the five solas. So, if you're not familiar with these, the first sola is sola scriptura. And what does that mean? Well, it means scripture alone. And so, as Martin Luther was coming back and said, the Bible alone is our highest authority. So, instead of looking to uh, churches or religion or traditions, we instead need to go back to God's word and make sure that we are looking at this as our authority and really our sufficiency. The other ones, the second one, sola fide, faith alone. Basically, we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. 
And the importance of this was not to say we have to do all these works to earn this salvation, but no, we need to put trust in Christ. Then there's soa, gratia, grace alone. And this was to reflect that we are saved by the grace of God alone. It's not because of what we do, but because of what Christ did. Because of the work of God in our life, the grace that he gives, that's the reason we can be saved. So is Christus, Christ alone. What was this to point to? That Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. So again, as we even reflect today, we're going to see glimpses of Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Lord of our life. He is the King. And the last one is, then solely de gloria, to the glory of God alone. I mean, our life has shifted from just doing what we enjoy. But instead, as believers in Christ, we should live for the glory of God alone, for the praise of his name. And so hopefully, as you reflect on these, that you say, yes, we all agree. Well, guess what? This is because that God, in his timing, interrupted church history to take the direction he intended, and God is here. So may we be celebrating that, but may we also be reflecting. May we be reflecting on to really remember, it's like we say these solas, and we say, yes, we affirm those, but then it's like, how do we actually live those out in my life? Because the the text we're going to look at today is John 15, 1 through 11, so you can grab a Bible in front of you if you need. It's on page 901 or somewhere around there if you don't have a Bible. And by the way, if you're a visitor here, don't have a Bible at home, please take that as a gift of our church um, and so that you can read and study you know, like we would want you to. But really what we're going to find in John 15, 1 through 11 is that we're going to see Jesus Christ, and he's going to give us foundational truths to be reminded that when we talk about Jesus Christ, is that he is not a part of our life. No, we need to be reminded that Jesus is the totality of our life. And if you can see, even the big idea reflects that true life is found in Christ alone. So live life abiding in him. So before we get into John 15, let, let me kind of just set the stage. Oftentimes we jump into a text and maybe we're just like, oh, but what, what's happening? What's going on? And if we don't, if we're just like reading our Bibles through a year, maybe you have a study plan, maybe you just read verses and, oh, those are really great and encouraging for me, and you don't take the time to look at the context. Well, we can't do that with this text. This text is actually set in the middle of what we would call the last Real intentional interaction with the disciples. You see, this isn't Christ teaching a crowd. This is Christ teaching specifically the 11 disciples in John 15. You see, this is a process of Christ at the Last Supper, starting in John 13, to Christ going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And really, John 13 through 17 really outlays these personal, intimate teachings he has with the disciples to really prepare them for what is about to come. Because Christ was aware that this was going to be, in the next several hours, was going to be arrested, was going to be tortured, was going to be found guilty and crucified on the cross. All that is coming. And so he knows that this is going to be a pressured time for the disciples, and so he wants to prepare them for that. But in all honesty... 
much like us, is that the disciples weren't aware of the impending circumstances that were coming. And so when we see that when Christ is outlining these things, that the disciples really did not gain a full understanding until after the resurrection. And so what I hope to do today is that as we reflect on this text, as we are reminded of just the centrality of Christ in our lives, so that we will make sure that we walk away with a soul focus and to abide in him. So if you have your Bibles open, let's read John 15, 1 through 11. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the father branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So what we hope to do as we look at this passage is that we will see that Christ ultimately gives us significant truths that will ultimately lead him to calling to have a specific application in the disciples' lives, but now even into our lives. So the first truth that we see is that we are identified in Christ. And so the application means so we should trust in him. You know, he starts out, he says, I am the the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And so we can look at that text and say, great, thanks for the fact. Like, what does that mean? Well, first thing is we have to realize is this isn't just Jesus stating a fact about who he is. You know, it's not like me saying, I'm a Chiefs fan, or a fact like I'm a dad, or maybe like the fact that I'm a biblical counselor. Like All those things are just kind of facts about me. But that's not what Christ's sole purpose is. In fact, these are one of seven or eight statements, depending on how you look at it, where Christ says, I am. But with the I am was to point to the fact that he is God. That he is the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity. And these statements that he makes to declare that I am is to point to the fact that he is God. And that was the Jewish understanding of only these things would be attested to God. And Jesus says, I am the one. I am the Messiah. And so where are some of those I am statements? Well, one, he says, I am the bread of life. He mentions that in John 6, 35 through 51. He says, I am the light of the world in John 8, 12 and 9, 5. John 8, 58, to show his eternality, Jesus was responding and says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. To reflect that he had no beginning. He is the full. God. He has no end. 
He's eternal. Goes on and he talks about, I'm the good shepherd. In John 10, 11 through and 14, he talks about, I'm the door. Really reflect on the, he is the way to salvation in John 10, 7. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Again, to show that because of me, there, there's new life found in me in John eleven twenty five. And so when we get here, he, he's making some of his final I am statements. When he says, I am the true vine, again, he is showing that himself as the sufficient only vine in order to have a relationship with God. In fact, for the Israelites, for the Jews, they will have looked at the vine as the Israel, being an Israelite or being associated with the nation of Israel was actually how you got these spiritual blessings and how you knew if you were in relationship with God. In fact, there was an understanding. In fact, in Psalms 80, verse 8, it does say, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. And so God did have a method. He had a mission. He wanted Israel to be this vine that would spread through the world, bringing the, the truth of how to have a relationship with the Father. But guess what? Is that we find other parts that this vine had sour grapes, that this vine did not produce like it was supposed to. Yet the Jews can still had a confidence that they were the way, that through them came salvation. And what Christ is saying at this point is like, you, they had a misunderstanding. It's not by being associated with Israel. It's not by doing religious practice. It's not to do certain religious exercise that got you into relationship with the Father, that got you into the relationship with the Godhead. He's saying, no. He's saying, what you have to do is actually be connected to the vine, which is me. See, Christ is pointing to the fact that he is the total substance needed for life and that every person in order to be saved to have intimacy have a relationship with him has to go through him Louis Burkhoff talks about this union and it's really when we reflect on the union of Christ that's kind of the doctrinal term that you can be reminded of is that and so Louis Burkhoff says and that'll put it on the screen behind me says the union may be defined as that intimate vital and spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength of their blessedness and salvation. And what we are reminded by this union is that there is no other possibility to be in a relationship with God without being united in Christ. In fact, as you read through the New Testament, you will see a term that will hopefully catch your eye like it did mine several years ago, is that there is two terms in Christ that repeatedly happen throughout Scripture to point to this union. And as you actually start looking at those and searching for that in Christ, you will see how many times it's used and how many times we are reminded that that is our connection. That is our transformation. That's why we are saved. That's why we have these blessings in this life. And so we are reminded, like, it's because of our identity in Christ that we're ultimately in relationship with God. And so by being united to him, Christ demonstrates that this is the way to have an intimate relationship with the Father. And he talks about that, that God is the vine dresser. But what's interesting about it is how the world tells us is that, and even in a lot of Christian circles, is that 
if you're in relationship with God, like all good things happen. All blessings happen. This is a fun life, vacation, enjoy. You know what? This is just an easy life. But actually, Jesus, preparing the disciples for what is about to come, actually gives them the true understanding of what it means to have be a relationship and what the Father's work in our life looks like is in verse 2. He says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And really what he's reflecting on is, is, you know, as people, we are grafted into Christ and we are branches. And again, he's going to talk about here in a little bit that you are clean. That's what he says in verse 3. And so it's a reminder that we're already changed. We already have the identity. But there's still things in our life that actually need to be removed. There's things that need to be uh, pruned so that we actually can produce more fruit in Christ. What Christ is demonstrating is how he deals with people who are the new creation. And here's the fact. Is that most of you, as you have walked in Christ, who have a relationship with Christ, will probably not be surprised But the life doesn't mean that it's without pain. In fact, the very notion of pruning means that there's some type of pain that's going to come. In fact, this pruning word really does mean to clean, to make, uh, or purify. And what we can think about is that God is gracious. His love does look like, we'll talk about here in a little bit, is to actually take this pruning to our life. And what does that pruning look like? Well, God often uses trials. He often uses hardships. He often uses things to help us to remove the things that are in our life that are robbing the richness of being in Christ, of the spiritual blessings. And so what he does is out of his perfect wisdom. Again, what I love, he's very careful. You can see that in verse 2. Is It says um, he takes... Uh, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Is that he's finding these things in your life, and he's wrestling through it. He's wrestling through the the weeds, the hardships, and he's only clipping the ones that actually don't bear fruit. And so that's what he's doing. Other times, what he's doing is actually doing pruning so that you can experience more fruit, that you can have more fruit. And so out of his love, love, he's very precise. He's very precise to take out what's necessary. So and another thing is, is that he does it with his, out of intention of his goodness. He wants what's best for you, which means being most like Christ. And so why, why is that so important? Why is Christ emphasizing this? Because, again, he wants them to be reminded and wants us to be reminded that this pruning is really to help in our walk with Christ so that we can experience the fullness of what this relationship looks like with him. Back in Hebrews 12, verse 10, it says, But he, talking about God, disciplines us for our good. Like, wait, discipline? Our good? That, nah, that doesn't match in my head. But why? So that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so what he's doing with the disciples. He's preparing them for the hardship that's about to come. Because the disciples are about to come under pressure because guess what? They are associated with Christ. And they're going to feel the pressure of the crucifixion. And unfortunately, out of the gate, they don't do well. They actually flee because they are confused. 
They flee because they are concerned about their own pain. That's where we will at times flee. There's at times we will grow, but that has nothing to do with our identity. In fact, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Meaning that those 11 that sat, Judas is gone. He is doing the bidding of Satan to actually bring about the crucifixion on Christ. Is that he's reminding those 11 that you are already clean. And it says, because of the word that I have spoken to you. And what that's really reflecting is not because you heard it. Say, oh man, that's some good teaching. That was a great sermon. Thumbs up, Jesus. That's not what, these, no, that's not what he means. He's saying, because you have actually believed, that you have actually trusted, that you trust that I am the Messiah, you believe that I am the Messiah, that you are saved and have a new identity. And that's not an identity that's earned. That's an identity that is given. It's given in Christ. And so you are a clean, so then we can then be reminded of that because when those trials and hardships could come, they're not to detract us from actually living in Christ, to actually be different. No, they're actually so that we can actually sit there and trust, knowing that this clean means that I am a follower of Christ and that God is doing a work in me. Because then what you see in verse 4 is, Abide in me and I in you. Stay close to me, disciples, and I will be close to you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What is Christ pointing to? He says, trust me. Trust me and stick with me. And stay with me. And so our response is as we consider what it means that we have identity in Christ, is that we should trust in Christ. Our demonstration of trust is actually to remain with him in whatever trials and pressures come into our life. In fact, Andrew Murray, you're going to throw a quote behind, on me on behind me. It says in Andrew Murray in uh, about his book, Abide in Christ, he says, while trusting in the Savior for pardon and for help and seeking to some extent to obey him, they, the disciples, have hardly realized the closeness of the union, the intimacy of fellowship, and the wondrous oneness of life and interest in which he imbibed them when he said, abide in me. So the question for you is, where are you at? Are you like the disciples who didn't understand, and we never really will understand, but are you pursuing to understand this closeness of the union that you have in Christ? Are you really taking the opportunity to be intimate and experience this intimate fellowship? And do you really sit there and contemplate the wondrous oneness of life that you have and the interest to which you have been invited to. Because this is a great opportunity, but guess what? It doesn't mean anything if you don't do something with it. So as Christ is preparing the disciples for suffering, we need prepared by the reminder that pruning is a reflection of our identity, not something that, we should, that should lead us to questioning our identity. See, so many times... And I would say this is part of the, the Jewish mindset too, is that what they would see is that if times were going good, I'm on God's good side. If times were by, going bad, God is angry with me. And that's honestly, like I do a lot of biblical counseling here at our church. And when I have, I have people come into my office, and that's kind of the theology that I'm hearing. 
And so people are overwhelmed, anxious. They don't know. They're saying, what, God, what did I do wrong? Help me know why I did wrong, why this circumstance came into my life. And Christ's saying, that's not the point. Because of you being in me, that's our confidence that we are in good standing with God. That should be the confidence. And that if there is pruning, if there's circumstances, if there's hardship, is we can be reminded whether we need to repent of, of disobedience, which is a for sure thing why God brings that pruning into our life. Or is it the fact that we are being faithful? We are trusting him. And he's just like, I, but I, want to give you, I want you to have more fruit. Because being suffering and being like Christ, that's part of it. It's so that you can experience more fruit. And so that's what he wants to remind the disciples, and really what we should be reminded is that pressures in life should drive us to actually trust him and to be reflecting on how can I actually experience a greater fullness of walking with him. So concentrate on growing and not be discouraged or think God does not love you because of the trials in your life. And the great thing is, is that's, if it was just about trust, We'd be like, oh, okay, I'll trust him, but I feel super inadequate. Well, God, Christ knew that too. And he knew that's probably how the disciples were going to feel, and so he gives them a second resource or a second reminder of who they are in Christ. He goes on to tell them that they are resourced in him. We are resourced in Christ, so we need to depend on him. Look at verse 5. He goes back to the, I am the vine, you are the branches. But this time he's going to make a different emphasis. Instead of, you know, helping them have confidence who they are in God, now he's going to tell them, but now there should be an outworking of this, of me being the vine and you the branches. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And so again, by making the statement, I am the vine, he's showing that the substance for our Christian walk is him. It comes through him. And so we need to be reminded that we do have to rely on that for the fruit of our life. In fact, when you talk about the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, that's what people often go to, and that's a good place to go. And so that should be evidence in your life. There should be fruit of repentance that should be evidence in your life. There should be fruit of just how you see your circumstance as evidence of fruit in your life, of seeing God being sovereign, seeing God's love, see, having biblical, all those things are fruit in life. But know that this fruit is what you actually show, but the fruit that really God is looking at is where it's coming from. Because you know, as he says, and if you do not abide in me, you're not going to be able to do it. In fact, there's some who will do all the activities that actually aren't my children. They aren't actually connected to the vine. I'm sure for Jesus, in his mind, is he's thinking about Judas. Because for the disciples, I really doubt they had an awareness of what Judas was doing. They did not have an awareness that he wasn't one of the true disciples, but Jesus did. Because as Judas is gone playing for the rest, helping to guide the rest, as he's being reminded, or he's reminding them of this, that, you know, there's going to be some who are going to look like it, right? It says, uh, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away. As he's reminding, like, these, these are going to look like branches. They're going to look like the branches that you are. They're going to actually put on different and have different elements in their life. 
but they really aren't the true branch because they really aren't connected with me. And it can be oftentimes very deceiving. That's why it's a personal accountability, but God knows. In fact, I learned this as in a, a smaller vine dresser, you may say, or a smaller gardener, is that recently Maggie and I actually had an experience about we were looking at fruit and reminded that it wasn't true fruit that we thought it was. Now, see, we have this tree in our backyard. We've lived at our house for three or four years. This tree is still a mystery to exactly what it is. It's a beautiful tree. It's a small tree. And, it's, and we always look at it and we're like, oh man, what, what a great tree. And we, we've looked over the years. We don't quite know what it is. I'm sure if I got an arborist or somebody, an expert, they would tell me right off the bat, whatever it may be. Well, one, year, one day... Uh, we went out there, and this tree, after three or four years, was starting to bear fruit. We're like, whoa, what in the world is this fruit on this tree? So there's a little bit of excitement. Like, then you get into the thing, is this poisonous fruit? Is this edible fruit? And so we started doing some research, and we looked more into it, and we started looking like this, these berries that were deep, deep purple. There, there was a, a shape, and we're like, okay. We started looking online, guess what? These berries look very much like an elderberry. An elderberry, if you don't know what an elderberry is, like this, this is the money tree that you might say. You really can get, make some money off of it. It has some great health benefits, all these things. And so you can imagine our excitement, like we've got an elderberry tree. And so we started digging in more. But we started to realize there's some things that are off about this. I mean, the tree kind of looks similar, but the berry. Like there's certain specific characteristics of an elderberry that this berry did not possess. And the berry that we saw that was similar to was actually the pokeberry weeds fruit. Like pokeberry, like this is a common weed in Kansas. This is one that we've experienced in our landscaping woes. They pop up, they grow. And so we've seen these before, but this time we're like, no, no, this isn't a pokeberry because this is a tree. It's different. Because if you know anything about a poker, it's this long, stocky thing. It's really easy to distinguish. And what you do with those, you pull them out of the ground, get rid of them. You try to kill them as best as you can. But we're like, no, no, this isn't. Well, everything kept pointing back. No, this is a pokeberry. And so then I started looking around. And again, our tree lays low to the ground. And I looked under there. And guess what had happened? There was a pokeberry weed that had grown up right next to the tree's trunk had actually come out above and was actually, its leaves and its fruit was actually overlapping the tree. And so what appeared to be coming from the tree was actually coming from the weed. And so guess what I did? Got it, pulled it out, and chucked it. Those things are poisonous. And what's interesting is that as we look, is that that's what Christ is saying. He says there will be people who will do the religious thing. There will be people who will go to church. Some people who stand in the confidence. In fact, when they, even they get to the throne of grace, they will sit there in front of God in accountability and say, and this is what they're going to say, not everyone who says to me, this is Christ, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven, on that many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesize in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Do mighty works in your name. Read the Bible. Go to church every Sunday. Pray faithfully. Did we not do all these things? And God's going to say, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You're like, wow, that seems pretty harsh. Well, the fact is, is that they were doing the duties of religion without actually having a relationship with the Savior. And so just as we see in this passage, those people are ultimately facing judgment. And so that's the question first in your life, is like, are you actually connected to the vine? Have you actually trusted in God in your heart that uh, trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord? Because if all you're doing is a bunch of religious activities to get to heaven or to have a relationship with Him, it's a fruitless effort. Because really the only way to have a re- is first to have a relationship, then you will see the fruit in your life. But it does mean that for when you do have a relationship, you still have to be depending on Him. And that's why he says in verse 7, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will remain for you. And actually when you can see in verse 5, he mentions the same thing. Again, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Meaning like there is a dependence that we have. And so when we, we look at that, we need to be thinking about like, what does my life look like? Does it demonstrate a dependence? Because oftentimes, we, if I had told you, like, abide in my words, really, he's like, hey, know my, know my word. Know my teachings. Know what I do. And so many times in our modern century, we're like, read your Bible. Right? And then he goes on to say, you know what? If uh, whatever you wish, and it will be done for, or ask wherever you wish, and it will be done. Meaning like, hey, go go the Lord prayer. And so be pray, praying. And so we, like, look at those and like, yes, absolutely. That's why we have spiritual disciplines. That's what we do. And so that's what we should do. And some people sit there as, and they are faithful. Man, they will pr- read God's word and pray continuously and faithful. But oftentimes it's just a check mark. It's a check mark mentality. It's a task I need to complete. I got it done. It's done. Other people, I'll sit in accountability time in our small groups, and they're like, oh, yeah, I really need, I need to get in God's word more this week. I did a couple times, or maybe not at all, and yeah, I need to do it more. Or, yeah, I need to pray. I just, man, I just can't find the time. Or, you know, I try to get up early in the morning. I'm just tired. And I'm just an excuse, an excuse of why they can't self-will the personal disciplines. But Christ isn't asking. He's not saying do these check marks to get the blessings of the Christian life. No, what he's saying is the reason that you do these things, the reason you read word, the reason that you're going to pray is because you need to depend on me. Because if we aren't reading his word out of a dependence, meaning that we recognize, man, I am insufficient to walk this Christian life faithfully, then guess what? Then again, we are not in the right motive or the right desire of why we're actually reading or if we're praying and we're just like, God, uh, I guess I have to say a few things to you. Uh, I'm not really sure. Okay, thanks, God. See ya. No, that's not. There should be a desperation of, God, I need your help. I know you call me to be like Christ, and I don't know how I do it in these situations. Or I don't know how that looks today. I'm afraid that I'm going to be overwhelmed. He's like, no, depend on me. Abide in me. See, our depends on God will be the actual way that we glorify God. Because you look in verse 
8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Is that we're not doing this activity. That's, it's not the activity that glorifies God. It's the heart behind the activity. Because our fruit, again, proves that we are connected to the vine. It proves, it shows who Christ is. It shows the power of Christ. It shows that transformation is. And so what we are demonstrating is that, yes, this is evidence. This is what it looks like. This is when pressure comes. I'm able to respond this way because of Christ. Because I'm depending on him. And so you have to have a life of dependence. And this life of dependence will actually be reflected. You, you will depend on what you actually love. And so if you love yourself, you're going to depend on yourself. But if you love Christ, you ultimately depend on Christ. And so that's really the last reminder that Christ gives in us in verse 9. It says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So we can be reminded that the reason we are loved is because we are loved in Christ. We are loved because of who he is. And so we need to love him. Because he says, abide in my love. And so the love of God, man, it's not a constructive love that we come up with. But it's one that's ultimately defined by God. I don't know about you, we all stay in the same place. We often wrestle with the understanding of God's love. Most of the time for us, love is what we define love to be. I mean, that's how the world tells us. Like if I went, actually went out and started asking people, hey, does God love you? Most people who have some construct of what religion is, they say, yeah, yeah, God loves me. There's not many. Then you start saying, like, what does that look like? Well, it looks like a vast array of things. Most of the time, it's based on my experience. It's that God's accepting or God just, you know, he, he wants to bless me. And all these things are self-centered constructs out of whatever experience or whatever thing they know. But that's not God's love. God's love is not defined by us. God's love is defined by God. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. But Jared Wilson gives us an understanding of what this looks like, or a better understanding of what God's love how we can understand it. And so it's, it'll be a, there's a quote that'll go behind me on the screen. It says, The scripture tells us that God's love is steadfast, enduring, unceasing, separation defined, everlasting to everlasting, and manifest in the scrutable incarnation. You're like, yes, that sounds great. I love that. We are told that God's love controls us. Wait, what? No, no, God's love lets me do what I want to do. Nope. It roots and grounds us, meaning that it, that's what we're holding on to. That's what we're stable. It's not about just our personal desires that we're grounded in his love. It's that we are rooted and grounded. And look at what, and surpasses knowledge. Love Ephesians 3.19. Paul's saying, hey, let the, let the church know the depth, the height, the width of your love. Meaning like they, we don't understand. We get microcosms of understanding of his love, but we don't understand the totality of it. And we should live a life pursuing the understanding and fullness of that love. That's a great pursuit, a great opportunity. But he goes on. This is a specific, personal love that accomplishes things. Like saving sinners. Not leaving us where it's at, but saving us. Disciplining them. I mean, when God sees a problem, he, he's going to discipline. Ouch. I don't, I don't know if I like that part of the construct of love. Directing their paths. I Means it's not everybody gets to go whatever way they want. No, there is a path. And God is directing it. We're allowing God to direct it. But this type of love is so different than the world. 
in the, how the world thinks about God's love. In fact, that's the last statement. Not a vague, ethereal love that makes the world go round. Because many times that's some type of definition of our love. That ethereal, it's, it's really shallow. It's really, and so it's just a reminder that we need to remind that God's love, when we look at that, has great depth, great complexity. And that we need to make sure that we are understanding that love if we're ultimately going to be able to rest, abide in his love. In fact, one thing is his love is not conditional, but he's also not unconditional. You're like, whoa, no, that's not what I've heard. Oh, David Palestine thinks puts it best. He says love, his love is actually counter-conditional. It means God's love saved you. He loved you despite you, who you are as a sinner. Despite. And he lo- his love is when you are saved and in him, he's not going to leave you where you're at. But he's actually going to help you change in your desires, help you reflect, help you have more fruit in your life. And so this is the type of love that he has for you. But it's defined by him. It's guided by him. And so we need to just, instead of trying to figure out how to get or want to get a God who loves us the way we want to be loved, is we need to look at a God of love who loves us as he sees fit to love. In fact, we've mentioned this word several times through these verses, this word abide. What does that mean? What does it mean to abide? I think a lot of people, when I ask them that, they're like, I don't know. Well, here's a definition from Sinclair Ferguson. I think it's a good definition. It means abide means allowing his word to fill our minds, to direct our will, and transform our affections. Great definition. I love that. Remember, abide means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our will, direct our desires, transform our affections, our love, what we actually cherish and want. And that's a great definition. But I still think we would struggle if I left you with that definition. Be like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I agree. But I think, and so when I get to this point of talking to people about abiding is, I really try to illustrate it. There's many different illustrations. You can go to the Old Testament, consider how God directed the Egypt, or Israelites out of Egypt. That's a good one. Because he directed by cloud. Um, cloud by day, fire by night. You can read into that and learn about that. But as I was actually preparing, is one thing that came, kept coming back to me was the fact of my own son. My, my son Titus, he's two years old. And this kid loves to abide in me. He loves to be in my presence. And if you're one of the children's workers who gets the opportunity for me to drop off my son, that dreaded opportunity, you know what's to come. As soon as I hand over, guess what? The tears start. The screaming starts. No! Now, give it five minutes, he does okay. But what's he, he wants not to be separated. And guess what? When I come back, if he hears my voice or sees me, guess what? Daddy runs to me. Because he wants to be in my presence. It's also funny when I come home, <laughs> he's always ready whenever he hears my voice, hears the door open. He's, he's like, I'm a, runs, runs to the door. It doesn't matter. His favorite thing to do, if you don't know, is he loves balls. He throws, pitches, does whatever, hits, whatever. Whatever he can do with the ball, he does. And if he's in the middle of the activity, guess what? 
doesn't matter. He drops it all. He drops it all to run to be in my presence. If he wants to play ball and I say, hey, buddy, I got to go to the store. Guess what? He's not crying. Oh, dad, I want to play ball. Why won't you play ball with me? You know what he does? He just says, okay. And he wants to go to the store with me. He's like, oh, okay, can I go in the truck, 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 truck? Like, all right, buddy, let's go. Like, right? Why? Because he wants to abide. He wants to be in my presence. He loves me so much that he doesn't want to be separated from me. And that's not always true. <laughs> but that's where when we consider ourselves abiding in Christ, is that we should look at that as we want to be in God's presence. Be with him. Let him direct. It doesn't matter. As long as we can be close to him, it doesn't matter what he wants us to do. Is that we are willing to follow. We are committed because of a love. And then look, loving Christ means that it's determined. God has determined how we love him. And that's what we see in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I cut my father's commandments and abide in his love. And so that means obeying. Again, as we look through, is that we need to make sure that we are willing to obey no matter what. Those things are hard, though, at times. For example, I'm sure most, a lot of you sit here and you've been hurt by other people in your life. And so what happens when we get hurt? How do you handle that? A lot of people, what they do is get bitter about it. And we start talking about bitterness, and of course God says, don't be bitter, but... Uh, there's no other way. Well, if I forgive them, they, they'll do it again to me. See, that there's this hesitancy to actually abide, to actually obey, to demonstrate the love that he has for us by actually exercising the way he wants us to. Others say, well, I, for, I forgave them, but I'm not going to have a relationship with them anymore. Is that, is that what abiding looks like? No, we should forgive with intentionality to actually look to reconciliation, restoring the relationship with other people. And we have to be reminded that this obedience is not to, again, connect us with the vine. The obedience is not to earn God's love. No, obedience is actually the out, of the outflow because of we love him. If you're trying to obey, and you're doing all these Christian activities, because you think like, well, I know this is the right thing to do. This is what God wants me to do. I mean, God will love me because I do it, and I'll get blessings from him. I'm like, it's for the wrong heart. Because the church activities or your faithfulness in Scripture or faithful in prayer should pour out the fact that you love him. It should be an overflowing out of your life. Because if it's not, it's just empty. And it doesn't ultimately glorify God. And it's ultimately not going to give you the, the blessings that you hope for. Because look at verse 11. It says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, the blessings of joy are ultimately found in following Christ and is never determined by the horizontal circumstances of life or the relationships that we have in this life. In fact, when we look at this word joy and saying that my joy, your joy may be full, it's like he's really referring not to happiness, not to being happy-go-lucky, but he's looking at contentment. And so uh, there's a great definition, Robert Jones, great article. Uh, it's called Learning Contentment in All Circumstances. Uh, 
can't remember what his booklet's called, but he has a booklet out there too, talking about learning contentment. But here's how he looks. When, he, when he's asked the question, or when he presents the question, what is contentment? This is how he defines it. And this should be behind me. It is having a satisfied mind in any situation. It is finding inner satisfaction in God alone and in his provisions for you. It is experiencing peace and confidence in difficult times. It is consciously enjoying the fact that God is good, even when your circumstances are not. Christian contentment and trials comes only as you look to the almighty God to give you strength to believe his promises and follow his commands. And so really what we can understand is that when we look at Christ and he says these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full is that it's available but it's not going to come through horizontal circumstances and it's, not, it's only going to come as a result of what? A result of abiding in his love and obeying his commandments. And then out of that ultimately you will gain the contentment that the Lord has available for you but you have to be willing to do that.